Hey, do you teach yoga? Have you ever trained to lead yoga classes to be a yoga therapist? Have you ever owned a yoga studio? Maybe even just wondered what it was like for the women and men up there in front of the room on their mats, leading you through endless Surya Namaskars, down dogs, and pranayamas galore? Well, these are their stories and mine. I'm Rebecca Sebastian, a 20-year yoga teacher, 10-year yoga therapist, yoga studio owner, and co-founder of a yoga-focused nonprofit. I've done a lot in the yoga world over the last 20 years, pretty much everything except had a water cooler. You know, a place to share stories, talk about struggles, successes, and find other people who do the same thing that I do. Welcome to Working in Yoga, a podcast and substitute water cooler for yoga folks to connect and build community, to share our unique profession, our challenges, and our journeys with the world. Hey friends, it's Rebecca here, and I just want to do a brief introduction of a very special new series that Working in Yoga has coming up, and I'm calling them the Puja Chronicles. This is the first of the Puja Chronicles. Puja Varani and I have gotten together. I had the pleasure of meeting her at a yoga conference in March of 2022, and we sat down and talked about how much we want to talk about these different issues that are happening in the yoga industry. And so we collectively started making a list and started developing some podcasts out of that list. So my request to you is that you come in so excited to hear what Pooja has to say because it's just wonderful. And if you feel so inspired, go support Pooja online. Go to her Instagram at Pooja Barani. See if you can, you know, Venmo her a cup of coffee, support her work, her courses, go find Pooja because she is wonderful. And it is truly and sincerely an honor for me to have her on the podcast. Our first episode this week is about multi-level marketing and that sort of system structure that is within the yoga industry. So I am, this is Pooja's absolute expertise area. She's teaching about it at the Driftless Yoga Festival that you can catch us both at at the end of June, driftlessyogafestival.com. That'll be linked in the show notes too. So go support Pooja. Have a great listen. She has a lot of amazing things to say, and it is beyond an honor for me to hold space for her to talk on this podcast. Welcome friends to Working in Yoga, and I have another Pooja Chronicle today. And I am so excited. So depending on how we publish this, this might be actually the first Puja Chronicle because they're all really, really good. So make sure that you're watching out for the series as it drops on the podcast. And today, Puja and I are talking all things in the yoga industry and how it doesn't have to be an MLM. So if you don't know the term MLM, I'm going to do a quick definition for you. It means multi-level marketing. So it is essentially one person getting people to work underneath them and those people getting other people to work underneath them so that the only people who make money are the people at the top. And we are going to talk about scammers and con artists and women in business today. So welcome, Pooja. Introduce yourself and we'll get started. <laughs> For sure. Hi, Rebecca. My name is Pooja Varani. My pronouns are she and her. I am located in Manahoke land or formerly Manahoke land, which is 
now the Plains, Virginia, about an hour outside of D.C., and I'm a pain-free movement specialist and a social justice consultant. So this is kind of the combination of all of those, right? Because we're talking about how to survive in this business, <laughs> teaching yoga, teaching movement, teaching wellness, teaching all of those things, right? Yeah. Oof. Okay. So MLM, yoga industry doesn't have to be an MLM. I'm going to have you start because this is your area of expertise and we get to talk about all of the like scammer con artist things that I'm like slightly obsessed with on Hulu and Netflix. So I'm kind of excited. So to all of the audience, the reason this started is because like Rebecca, I'm obsessed and have watched Inventing Anna and the Tinder Swindler and just finished watching The Dropout about, uh, I think... Tinder Swindler is about Simon Lviv. Uh, yep. The Dropout is about Elizabeth Holmes. And, and Inventing Anna is about Anna Sorokin. And when I finished watching Inventing Anna, I immediately sent Rebecca a text and I said, holy SH blank blank, we need to talk about this. We need to talk about this now because I've seen this so much in the yoga industry. <laughs> yes. Oh my God, yes. And because I complain about it in the yoga industry, right? That whole MLM piece that we're going to dive into. I was wondering why am I obsessed with all of these people who are scammers and con artists? So luckily for me, Huffington Post and Guardian and several other magazines gave me some <laughs> thoughts as to why I'm obsessed with it and the psychology behind that. So I'm going to read you some quotes or some thoughts from them just because they put it so much more articulately than I could. So Huffington Post looked at several reasons we're obsessed with scanners and con artists, right? The first one is it's easy to ignore the victim because these aren't violent criminals we're dealing with. And this, there's this thought in society, which is, is white collar even crime? And recently it struck me that when we say white collar, we're referring to higher skilled jobs, supposedly higher skilled jobs. But aren't we also referring to white people? Nods head yes as a white person. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like if it was a white collar crime committed by somebody who was in black, who who is a black person or somebody who was a person of color, would it be white collar crime or would it be considered crime? You know, the yeah. second was that often we feel superior that, hey, this could have never happened to me. I couldn't have been duped into this. I'm not that gullible. This happened to those folks. So whatever for them, right? Like we're, we're kind of laughing at other people's pain. It's a bit of a schadenfreude where we're taking pleasure, <laughs> schadenfreude where we're taking pleasure in their pain. And along with that taking pleasure in their pain, there's this idea that so many of us have imposter syndrome. Have you heard about this, Rebecca, imposter syndrome? Oh yeah, of course, of course. Right? I'm going to actually have you define it because I know you can define it better than I can. <laughs> so imposter syndrome is essentially a syndrome that is, well, first of all, there's a lot of research saying it's not a thing, but what we consider imposter syndrome is when we when we show up with knowledge of something, but we feel like we don't know anything. And, and it is something that is often attributed to women and humans who identify as women um, as being the reason why we can't show up and can't be visible in spaces because we don't think we know enough. Right. And, and I love how you said it may not be a thing because really, isn't that just being human, being insecure and not 
100% positive about everything we do because we are humans who err? <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? But because of imposter syndrome, when so many of us feel this idea of, hey, do I really know anything about this? And then we see folks who pretend to know something about it and potentially get caught, there might be something therapeutic about it, or there might be some pleasure in, well, they're getting punished for being an imposter, you know? Yeah. On top of that, a lot of these scammers are so charismatic, right? Like they're usually good looking. We like the whole idea of this get rich quick fantasy. I mean, if you told me that there was a way that I could make a million, actually not a million, like let's say 10 million, and I could make that within a year, of course, I I would jump on the bandwagon, right? Because who doesn't want that? I don't have to work and I can get lots of money. Yeah. And, you know, the last thing is, And this is what boggled my mind, right? Because I will tell you, I've always been a person in pursuit of justice. So when I am watching these shows, there's about 25% of me who's just like fascinated by these people and 75% of me who thinks it's a train wreck. And I want to watch how everyone emerges out of this train wreck. And I'm voting for justice to happen, right? I'm voting for some sort of punishment to happen to these con artists. And when they looked at this, they found that actually the majority of people, right? Here's the theory, at least the majority of people were looking at these very narcissistic, very grandiose characters, right? And who don't even care about the harm they're causing. And we're almost envious of it because even when those schemes fail, because there's this thought that these people are so brazen and they're so confident. And if only we could do that as well, if we were that brazen and that confident. And that's where I really wanted to start with, because that just blew my mind that envy could be the reason we're watching these things. Okay. There's so much to unpack here, Pooja. (laughs) But I'm going to start with one thing that I think you said really, really well, that, that, made me curious, right? So we have like this envy, this idea, and also this idea that we want them to be punished. Now I am going to quote my business coaches. And if you ever want to listen to their podcast, it's called the And She Spoke podcast. And they have an entire podcast just about Anna Sorokin and Elizabeth Holmes. Uh, But we do, as humans who live in a patriarchal society, tend to punish women who are ambitious. Because what I find very interesting, with the exception of Simon Lviv, and he is the quote-unquote Tinder swindler, um, we have, and I'm going to add Bad Vegan as a docu-series that you can also watch, um, we tend to be punishing women for their ambition. And since I, you and I both work in an industry that is overwhelmingly women or humans who identify as women, I think it's interesting to think think about and unpack how we consider our ability to make money. Is it a good girl thing to do to be ambitious the way that Anna Sorokin was or Elizabeth Holmes was? I mean, and, but also I look, I watched these in horror as well. Partially I was wanting to check myself. Like, am I like Elizabeth Holmes or Anna Sorokin? Like, Am I, would I be willing to do the things that they did to get the thing that I wanted? It's a question I've asked myself as well. Yeah. Like, like after watching the bad vegan series, actually, I went into my studio and 
talked with my apothecary director and she and I were sitting down and she, she and I were going, okay, so that is mental energy worth spending. What would you, what do you want so badly that you would be willing to do anything? And for me, absolutely. Having spent 20 plus years in the yoga industry, it was finding a sustainable living so that I could support myself and my family. There's a lot that I would be willing to be ambitious about in order to make that happen. And she had a different answer based on her experience, of course. But it's worth knowing that there is that there so that I can make sure that I am always showing up as the most, most ethical, honest, nurturing, nourishing human that I can be. Absolutely. And and there's a couple of things there, if I may interject, that just stuck out to me, right? Like the first one was when you pointed out to me, but so many of these people are women, right? One of the things that struck me at the end of the dropout was the idea that women are still struggling to get loans when they start businesses in Silicon Valley. And one woman was even told to dye her hair because she looks like Anna, uh, sorry, she looks like Elizabeth Holmes, which I'm thinking, don't most CEOs in Silicon Valley look like the same white guy? (laughs) And they're not told to dye their hair because, you know, or even after all of the scandals with (laughs) Enron and all the financial scandals, no one said, okay, well, you look like this other white man. (laughs) So you should not look like this white man. We can't give you capital. Yes. And also the fact that with Simon Lviv, I had so much empathy for those women because, I mean, I'm a person who follows my heart. (laughs) And, And I know that even the most cynical among us has done something stupid in the name of love. As human beings, I'm convinced that most of us have done something stupid when there's the possibility of true, true, true love. So the fact that there was so much hatred and vitriol directed at his victims, especially his female victims who appeared in that documentary, Tinder Swindler, was really sad and disheartening and really, to me, brought up, you used this powerful word earlier to me today, the patriarchy, right? The fact that it's become normal to penalize and to harm women. Yes, he stole their money. He stole their money. And we look at them as the people who should have known better. Yeah. And, you know, that point earlier that you raised that, well, yoga is this industry that's mostly women. There's this great article. And I know there's conflicting thoughts on this particular person, but I love this quote. So the article was from Medium and it was called the pseudo feminist rise of essential oil star Elena Brower. Right. So she's a very controversial figure. Yes. But the quote I love is where yoga, life coaching, and MLM sales could lead to extremely toxic dynamics hidden by a pseudo feminism that pretends to uplift women while actually spiritualizing the worst aspects of predatory capitalism. I'm just going to applaud. That's, yeah, that is our challenge in a nutshell. Right? How do we uplift each other while also making our own ends meet? It it becomes interesting. I I think we as women are cultured to believe that there's only a small portion of the pie for us. 
And so we fight amongst ourselves about who gets that portion of the pie. Now, just for sport, because I'm a little nerdy, like a while ago, I made like this document about where the 44, alleged $44 billion in the yoga and wellness industry is. And it looks and reads just like you would expect with a bunch of white guys. So I want to challenge all the women, queer folks and BIPOC folks out there who live and love the industry of yoga to go take their money. There's plenty out there for us. I mean, as, as we'll, and we'll get to this in a little bit, but there are entire chains that are seeing the opportunities in our industry right now, based on the fact that we're in a vacuum because of so many people leaving the industry due to COVID and they're going to take our money. Let's go take it from them. We don't have to fight amongst ourselves for a small sliver of this pie. Absolutely. And not to complicate things, but to add one more element of intersectionality to it, especially speaking as a person of color. I'm currently reading a book, which I highly recommend, called The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. It's by Heather McGee, who is a person of color who's a Black person living in the United States. And the premise of this book is that when Americans were polled, and I'm speaking from the American perspective because Rebecca and I are located in the U.S., just in case you're listening to this elsewhere in the world. However, when Americans were polled, the majority of people of color, when they were asked, if you were to get more wealth or if white folks were to get more wealth, would this take away from another group's wealth? They said, no, of course it wouldn't. They said, we can get more wealth and we can get more jobs and so can white folks and we're not competing. Whereas when white Americans were polled, the majority of them said, no, if people of color make more wealth, they're taking away from us. So it's this essential pitting of marginalized groups against each other in a way that really, truly benefits the mainstream. Ooh, I'm going to repeat that book title again. The book title is The Sum of Us and confirm the author Heather McGee. And I think that can be really, really hard in yoga. And here's why. In yoga, the majority of folks are low income, sub-minimum wage workers who offer something of high value. My yoga teacher, Kobe Kozklowski, one of my yoga teachers once told me, are there too many yoga teachers? Yes, if you're teaching stretching. But if you're teaching yoga as the ultimate reaching of human potential, and this is just me paraphrasing, but if you're teaching yoga as the ultimate reaching of human potential, then there can't be enough yoga teachers, right? So we're offering something of very high value and getting paid very little money. And I just want to acknowledge that can affect people of all genders, of all sexual orientations, of all colors of skin, of all levels of ability. While it has more of an impact on marginalized folks, this really is the vast majority of yoga teachers we're talking about right now. Yes, the overwhelming majority of us. And I find it really interesting how because of social media and because of everything that's been going on, there is this rise of the the yoga celebrity, right? <laughs> <laughs> Which is really funny because when I went to Rebecca, what did you invite me for? 
So I invited Pooja. This is how Pooja and I became friends is that I run a nonprofit called the Quad Cities Yoga Foundation. And we had a fundraiser called YogaCon. And she came and taught an amazing workshop at it. And I had several people there who told me they were afraid of being in the room with me or afraid of taking a class with me because I was famous. I was <laughs> a yoga celebrity, which just cracked me up because I'm like, I don't even know if half of the people in my town know me, right? Like my groups of people who know me, know me, right? Like, but not all of the yoga teachers know each other in Washington, DC. There's a big group of us. So I just thought it was very funny because I view myself as a very ordinary person. But because of social media, there's this huge portrayal of people as celebrities, right? And there's this, this already existed, but it's just been easier to proliferate through social media, through Facebook, through Instagram, through Twitter, all of those things is the idea of fake gurus, as well as all sorts of coach, coaches, right? Life coaches, wellness coaches, business coaches, yoga coaches who capitalize on these unbalanced power dynamics. Not only predatory capitalism, but the facts that we mentioned earlier about sexism and the patriarchy, as well as racism and homophobia and ableism, and we could go on and on. You bring up a very good point, this this yoga celebrity that happens online. And um, I talk a lot about in my personal work about what leadership looks like within the industry, because I feel like somebody needs to start talking about leadership. Um, because if we don't talk about leadership, we have sort of default leaders. And those leaders tend to be the people who are the most popular. But, and this is always my joke, right, is anybody who's seen the movie Heathers knows that the most popular people are not always qualified to be the leader. Now, that is a very niche reference to people who are born in the 70s and 80s. <laughs> but it is it is essentially, there are these people who are the most popular who are not nice. And I think that happens in our industry, too. Oh, all the time. And you just have to look at all of those scandals that have happened right? Whether it's Amrit Desai or John Friend or Bikram Chowdhury or what names am I forgetting here, Rebecca? Yogi Bhajan, Patabi Joyce. So there's this play that came to DC and my friend invited me. And at the end, she's friends with one of the actors in it. It's a, it's a play called Yoga Play! Exclamation point. <laughs> so Yoga Play was written by, uh, I think the person is of South Asian origin. And we can put it in the show notes, right? She's of yeah. South Asian origin and has written uh, a lot of things from mainstream TV shows in LA and all over the country. So this was a regional production of Yoga Play, right? The DC version of Yoga Play. And I told him at the end, he's like, how'd you do? Did you have fun? And I was like, I'm not sure if I had fun. Like I laughed and I also wanted to cry the entire time. So I think, <laughs> I think you did your job well, right? And there's this one point where an Indian man who was born in the U.S., which I found very relatable because I, too, was born in the U.S. I was born in New York, if you can tell from the super fast talking. <laughs> so he calls up his mom and he says, we're looking for an authentic yoga guru, somebody in India. Who can you recommend? And she starts listing these names. And he's like, there's sexual assault. There's rape. I don't know about this. And his mom pauses and says in an Indian accent, you want to find an Indian yoga teacher, a famous yoga teacher who is not a rapist. That will be difficult. Oh. Which was a big laugh for the audience and was a laugh shaking my head. It was that cry laugh emoji was really the, the best way to describe it. 
That's literally what I just did. (laughs) No, and I want to go back to your point, Rebecca, and have you talk more about this, right? About how sometimes we empower people, not empower people, we put in power people who are not nice. We do, and I think it happens sometimes by accident. We have an industry of people who feel like being true to the spiritual discipline and practice of yoga means that they cannot and should not court things like ambition or leadership. But then what happens is that those humans who are truly ambitious and want leadership and money and power and all the things that are a high drug of essentially power, it's all um, part of power, those people have an easy time taking over the industry. And I find that really fascinating. I mean, we're finding it now in things like business coaching. You're seeing people who are the most popular business coaches who sometimes are teaching, I mean, subpar content or predatory practices. Like, I don't think we have to operate our businesses that way, but because those humans are popular and we're all very poor as an industry, we're willing to do whatever it takes to get more money so that we can eat. Absolutely. And I forget who who said this, whether it was you or me, because at this point, I think we're on the same wavelength. (laughs) But I loved this quote, which was business coaching is the new cult of the yoga industry. Yeah. And the fact that so many people are shelling out thousands of dollars and confession I have as well for I'm, I'm going to have Rebecca list these. I call them the proven business strategies because she basically summarized in a paragraph what I spent thousands of dollars trying to learn. Okay, so buckle up. Are you ready? So you're going to be a yoga teacher and you're going to teach people yoga content. Then you're going to teach people enough to do a workshop or two. If you can, you're going to make an email list so that you're going to make a freebie, some sort of masterclass webinar, you know, e- ebook something so that you can get more emails so that you can cycle your course or membership um, for it. Your course is going to cost, you know, what, between $1,000 and $3,000. Your membership where you get face-to-face time is going to cost between five dollars and $10,000. How'd I do? I really wish I hadn't spent thousands of dollars on this when I could have just <laughs> called you up and you could have told me that. <laughs> and I don't think that's always the best business model, is it, Rebecca? It's it's not. I mean, it is a business model and it is for some people a successful business model. But frankly, it's not the only way that we can do business. And there, frankly, is there there are many ways for us to make our living within the industry. And to be honest with you, there are so many in, in I mean. So I feel like at this point, I want to shout out Larie Schuweiler real quick, because Pooja and I are going to both be at Larie Yoga Festival talking about this exact thing here. She's running Driftless Yoga Festival, and Pooja is talking about yoga as an MLM, and I'm talking about yoga as an intersectional business model, because we don't have to do it this way. We don't have to use things like pain points or FOMO or all of those things that we think we have to do in order to run a business, we don't. We get to choose what our businesses are like. And I'm quoting my business coach right now, whose name is Sandy Connery. And guess what she doesn't do? Work in the yoga industry. So (laughs) (laughs) there are other business coaches out there that can talk about what it is to run business models that are different. 
Yeah, because in this, I feel like what's happening is that these false gurus or these Instagram coaches, the the yoga coaches, the ones who claim to be doing a lot, right? Some of them have made a lot of money. (laughs) That is true. And we have to consider why they have, right? Were they the first to the market? Were they doing this in a time before COVID, before the pandemic, before the majority of yoga teachers started creating online businesses? The second is, and this is one that comes up big for me, is that so many of them are blonde or brunette, high-income white females, right? They look like the person who could be on Yoga Journal. It's not often that you find a queer person of color on Yoga Journal. It's not often that you find a fat person with a disability. It's not often that you find an indigenous person or a BIPOC person. Um, So I think they're touting this thing. They're touting this get rich scheme and they're really appealing to people's desperation. And it's really hard when you're making 20K a year, when you're making below minimum wage, when you cannot pay your bills and someone tells you, and I'm speaking from personal experience, think of me what you may, but it's really hard when you have that sort of desperation or when I had that sort of desperation not to go for anything or do anything to pay my bills. Yes. The the fact of the matter is, if you have to choose between eating and literally anything else, we're humans who will choose eating. We've got to eat. We have to have a roof over our heads. There is so much. I mean, I see within the yoga teaching industry, like humans who are like salivating for that sustainable business that they can feed their families and and we also have this complicated messaging, right? Like this messaging that I think becomes really insidious when we share it with folks in marginalized communities, the BIPOC community, the queer community, where we tell them, oh, you're not going to be yoga enough if you make a sustainable living. Like you have to do this for seva or yes. selfless service. You don't have to get paid for teaching yoga. You can teach for free. It is one of the nastiest things in our industry. I will be goddamned if I watch one more person tell a person of color, a queer person, or women who are all catered. And there, you are absolutely right. The the people making the money are the white women at the top, right, who are teaching. But it is so problematic for us to perpetuate this idea that as yoga professionals, we should expect to make a less than poverty wage living. Like, please stop doing that. There's a ton of money to be had in our industry. Yoga six is a really good example of it. Oh, please talk about yoga six. You were mentioning <laughs> this to me earlier and it just like, <sighs> I mean, so everything you-, you say to me just like blows my mind because I, I just can't, <laughs> it just blows my mind. So yeah, dive in. I mean, so here's the thing. Yoga Six is the new chain on the block for the yoga industry in North America. You're going to see, and yoga studio owners talk about this a lot, that we are watching Yoga Sixes pop up across the street from our studios all over. I mean, so the last I checked, and I I did not check today before this, but the last I checked, there were over 90 locations of Yoga Sixes in the United States, and they expanded the vast majority of those in 2021 when all the rest of us 
were starving and couldn't pay our bills when yoga studio owners were taking on tens of thousands of dollars of debt in order to stay open, Yoga 6 was expanding because they saw what I saw, which was a giant vacuum of people leaving the industry. And there's still a need and a want for what we have to offer in the general community. So they raised venture capital. They expanded a whole into a whole bunch of different locations. So you can't tell me there's not money for us to be had. There's a, we're watching a chain do it right now. Go get your money. It's absolutely unbelievable. Can you talk a little bit more about their model and like their venture capital model and how that differs from your model? Sure. By no means an expert in the venture capital model. But from what I do know, typically venture capital businesses are designed to burn out quick and get a lot of money all at once. So they're going to infuse a bunch of money into the system. And we saw this happen with Core Power and Yoga Works as well. Yoga Works is a really good example of this, where they raised a bunch of capital. They put out a bunch of locations. They did that kind of MLM model that we were talking about where you, you open a studio, people learn at the studio, they want to teach yoga, you know, because we do know that yoga provides a transformational experience, right? So people want to learn more. So they become yoga teachers. In order to work at the yoga studio they love, they have to go through that studio's teacher training program. And then in order to maintain their jobs, they have to funnel their students into the teacher training program. That's essentially a snake eating its tail. Eventually, you're going to run out of people who want to be teachers. And so you come in, you make as much money as you can right away, and then you're done. So then you just get out and sell the whole thing, make a bunch of profit as quickly as possible. Most of us don't see yoga that way. Most of us who own yoga businesses are there because we love the tradition and want to share it with the community. And so it's almost counterintuitive to watch a venture capital model come into the industry and blow through it really fast. Also taking a lot of us, especially speaking as a studio owner, down with it. I mean, I will tell you, I don't run teacher trainings at my studio and I find it problematic for a whole lot of reasons that we can talk about another time because <laughs> I can probably sit here for a half hour and say that. But I also don't run a popularity contest because that's who gets rewarded in those big chain models. Like the teacher who's the most popular, makes the most money, gets rewarded, funnels the most teachers into the teacher training program. I don't run that model. I run a membership model. Most businesses who are yoga studios that made it through are running membership models where it doesn't matter to me if one person comes or 10 people come to a class. I am there to provide a nourishing space for my teachers to share this thing that they love. And I get paid the same whether one person comes or 12 people comes. So it's just a different model. And I think it's difficult for people to grasp that there is another way to do this because we all look at yoga six and we go, okay, they must know something that I don't because they're really successful. Well, they're not designed to be successful long-term. They're designed to be successful short-term. Absolutely. And I do want to say there are two other models, right? Yes. Um, and I'm going to give you just two more bad models in case you cannot relate to the yoga six, right? Because I've had no <laughs> personal experience with the yoga six, but 
For some of you teachers and studio owners, you may relate to these, right? One I call the Brian Kess model. So Brian Kest owns a studio out in Los Angeles, and I have several friends who train there. And one of them told me he loved it. Why? Because you have to rent space. So those teachers who do well really have to hone their craft and they have to keep on teaching until they grow an audience, which he is an amazing teacher. But as Rebecca said, it is a popularity contest, right? When you look at those teachers who are most popular, identity privilege is going to play into that. It just does. As much as we want to pretend that we're going to support people of color and we're going to support queer folks and people with disabilities, identity privilege plays into that. So that's one model where you have to rent space. And then the second that I've seen, and this is just, Rebecca, I'm sure this is why you don't do teacher trainings, right? And I'd love if if you went into that a little bit more, but I was talking to a friend of mine who teaches at one of the studios I teach at, and we have a very interesting and slightly differing background because I've done a lot of nonprofit management consulting, and he's done a lot of management consulting. And why that differs is because as a nonprofit consultant, I have no idea how to actually make a profit and make tons of money, (laughs) right? (laughs) In the nonprofit sector, it's about, you're not going to make a profit, right? It's about having a little bit of profit or a little bit of money that you can reinvest or more money, right? And that you can reinvest while actually maximizing your social impact and your social good. So it's not about making billions of dollars. It's about how much money do you need to run your services and how much is enough that's good for the rainy day, for the COVID pandemic or whatever, right? Whatever the situation is. Whereas he's a management consultant, he's about maximizing the profit. So he told me it's really odd how Roga teacher trainings run because teachers will pick their best students, right? And this happens at Core Power all the time, but it happens in other teacher trainings. Teachers will pick their best students or studios will pick those students who attend everything. So if you were to think of this in a business model, these are your consumers. They're going to buy every single product that comes out, right? They're going to attend your workshop. They're going to attend this other workshop. They're going to attend this class. They're going to come for retreats. They're going to come for immersions. They're going to come from everything. And by recruiting them to become teachers, when they become teachers, they then, a lot of studios will offer them free classes or free workshops. They'll offer them other perks. They'll start paying them. So essentially what they've done is they've turned their assets into liabilities, right? In plain English, they've turned the money they were making into expenses. They now have to pay it out. And to me, just like the Yoga 6 model, even though it's on a much smaller scale, And there are studios that are struggling and saying, hey, I'm not Yoga 6. I'm a small studio, but I run teacher trainings because I want to make money. You're still the snake eating the tail. And it's not your fault. It's just that we've been taught that these are the only models that work. Whereas Rebecca's model is different. It's true. I mean, we joke sometimes at, at my studio that no money ever leaves the yoga industry because we know the cycle, right? So you're a dedicated practitioner. You train to be a teacher. If you're lucky, you train enough to be able to do workshops. And then anybody who's been teaching knows workshops are where money's at. So if you can cycle up enough that you can make, you know, $400 in two hours as opposed to 40, that's a big difference. And then eventually everybody has this very sort of pie in the sky goal of training the teachers. Like eventually I'll be a trainer so I can sell my stuff to other people who are already in the industry, which I find really interesting, right? So no, there's no money that ever leaves. It just cycles up. 
Oh, absolutely. And that's such an interesting way of looking at it because I know part of my reasons for being a teacher trainer were financial. The other parts were more altruistic and my desire just to teach things that I never learned in my 200 hour and to share a different perspective that doesn't exist in many 200 hours. But part of that was, well, this is the journey, right? As a yoga teacher, this is the journey to more wealth and to a more sustainable income. Yeah, a thousand percent. I mean, and it is the it is the model. And I'll talk a bit about mine. So I don't, as I said, I don't train yoga teachers. And I feel strongly for two reasons. One, because I find the structure of teacher training overall in the industry to be really problematic. And I personally don't want to contribute to that. Secondly, I think it is a huge problem. And we've said this in other um, Puja Chronicles. But I will say it again, it is a huge problem if you are a teacher trainer who is also a business owner and you train people in a discipline that is transformative as a spiritual discipline, it is problematic for you to also be that person's employer. I think very strongly that we need to stigmatize people who are training teachers who then are employing those people because those are two hats. It should be unethical for us to wear at the same time. I'm your sacred teacher, but also I'm your boss. Absolutely. I'm all for double duty on a lot of different hats. We wear a lot of them in this industry. Sometimes I'm your therapist. Sometimes I'm your physical trainer. Sometimes I'm all these other things, you know, the idea that you would have to advocate for your workers' rights with the person who trained you in a spiritual discipline where you experience transformation personally is so problematic, I cannot even. Like, please don't do that. If you train as a yoga teacher, go work somewhere else. Let that person be your sacred teacher. Absolutely. Could not agree more. I've. Love to share. We were talking about this person earlier, Angela Jameson. Angela. Yeah. So Rebecca's had the pleasure of meeting Angela. I have not. But she has a YouTube video called Seeing Like a School, which I suggest you listen to, right? And before I dive into that, I just want to preface it by saying, isn't it ironic that we're talking about MLMs and capitalism and pyramid schemes? When we're talking about yoga, which is a <laughs> philosophy that was created that was antithetical to making money, right? Yes. It's a 5,000-year-old philosophy. This whole idea of doing it to get a toned booty and to do your sun salutations and yada, yada, yada is the past 100 years, right? Like yoga was not invented by Gwyneth Paltrow in the US. That did not happen. <laughs> it was not invented by Indra Devi. It was not invented by Iyengar. It was invented 5,000 plus years ago, not only in South Asia, but in parts of Africa, right? So it's a very old tradition. And I can speak to the South Asian tradition. The South Asian tradition was that yogis, and I say yogis, not yoganis, because at that time it was cishet men, or at least cis men, had the privilege of leaving their families behind and going into the woods. And what they would do is they would meditate. And they didn't care if they had a toned booty. All they cared about was, am I limber enough to sit in meditation? Not for an hour, not for a day, but for years, which some of them did. 
right? Their food was provided by begging. They didn't have to worry about making a living. They weren't what Hindus would call a grahasta, which is a householder, which most of us are now, right? So coming back around to Angela Jameson, she was talking about in this video, seeing like a school, she talks about this history of yoga and how in this, you had this ancient tradition of a gurukul, which is where the idea of guru comes from, right? So a gurukul is an ashram or a, a school taught by a guru, a teacher, right? A sacred teacher. So in this gurukul, you have one teacher and maybe you have a dozen, maybe you have hundreds, maybe you have thousands of students. Okay. And they're training they don't get their yoga 200 hour <laughs> yoga alliance certification in a month. They study for years. Oftentimes young boys were dropped off and kept there for their schooling and their education and lived there for decades, decades, maybe the majority of their lives. And they got to enjoy the practice of yoga. And out of all of these students, maybe maybe a select few could become teachers. Maybe, right? Maybe, the and they had to be appointed by their guru who said, okay, you are good enough. I see you at a point, go out and teach to other students. Don't teach for me, teach to other students, right? So this idea of capitalism and capitalism really thrives on scale. MLMs tri- tri- thrive on scale. So do M&Ms. Right. The more you can sell, the more money you make. Right. Capitalism is all about selling, 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 selling. And you can keep on cheapening your product as long as you sell more. Right. Or you make your product more and more expensive and select sell it to an elite group. But there's enough people to do it. Right. So it's all about scale. You need lots and lots and lots of people. But the yoga model is the opposite of that, because in order for the transformation that Rebecca keeps on referring to to happen, It has to happen in a smaller group where the guru can pay attention to the few students. And you'll see that even in the Indian tradition, those gurus that went awry, like Osho, like Yogi Bhajan, like Bikram, they got caught up on this idea of capitalism, of scale, of teaching hundreds and thousands of students where they couldn't pay attention to students and where, quite frankly, they got drunk with power. Angela is so good. Oh, that is, I need y'all to go to YouTube and actually we're going to link this in the show notes to Angela's video, seeing like a school. And it is so good. Thank you, Pooja, for bringing that up. Yeah. Thank you for sharing your model with us. It's my pleasure. I, again, am going to shout out Larie. Come see both me and Pooja at Driftless this summer. It's in the middle of Iowa. Yes, I know. And some of y'all might be on the coasts, but be bold. Come visit us. Absolutely. Because true impact happens on a small scale. And this is going to be a smaller festival with very intimate teaching opportunities. And those opportunities for transformation, not just from the two of us, but from a whole host of other folks who are really doing actual good work in the world, especially in the yoga world. Yes. We need us. Yoga needs us. Yoga needs you. Thank you all for listening today. Thank you, Pooja, for having this conversation, because I honestly feel like we could have this conversation for 10 hours and still have more to say about it. Oh, absolutely. And we are going to say more at Driftless. So come see us. (laughs) (laughs) That was so good. All right. Thank you all for listening and we'll see you next time. 
Bye. Thank you so much, Pooja, for coming on the podcast. This was a great first episode of the Pooja Chronicles. Next episode that's coming out is Alexandra Salas. And Alexandra is talking about how we can get better at virtual education in the yoga industry. She is a professor and an expert in teaching people online. And so she is talking about how we can shift into this new iteration of virtual teaching online. And I have to tell you, I found everything she had to say so spot on and so riveting. So stay tuned for Alexandra's podcast to come out next time.